Every person who can vote should vote on Election Day. I'm Brian Lehrer. You're listening to the Politics Brief podcast, bringing you the best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear smart conversations from shows like On the Media, The New Yorker Radio Hour, The Takeaway, and yes, The Brian Lehrer Show. Plus, great reporting from our WNYC newsroom. We'll give you the information you need so you can choose wisely on Election Day. Welcome to Politics Brief. In our political climate, arguments about the past are absolutely everywhere. Look at the turmoil over Confederate monuments or on the limits to immigration. Think about the president's call that we should make America great again versus the progressive view that we are always somehow trying to make America better. Jill Lepore has been writing for The New Yorker about our current political struggles, but always with the long view of a historian. And in her day job, when she's not writing pieces for us, Jill's a professor of history at Harvard University, and in a brand new book called These Truths, she's tackled the entire American story, and it's a remarkable undertaking. Jill, let me start with the obvious. You've decided to do a survey of over 600 years of American history from (laughs) from 1492 to last week. The obvious, but the inexplicable. (laughs) Well, that's it. That's it. What possessed you? Why did you tackle something so ultimately expansive? Um, Partly, I really can't turn down a dare. This is a bad thing to confess. Um, A. B. What uh, what was the dare? Who dared you? uh, Norton, the publisher. And then I really, really, really thought, damn, I wish there was a book like that. And I decided someone should try. Well, this book, which is filled with uh, all kinds of triumphs and achievements and all the rest, but it opens with some really grim statistics. And you write between... 1500 and 1800, roughly two and a half million Europeans moved to the Americas, and they carried 12 million Africans there by force, and as many as 50 million Native Americans died, chiefly of disease. And so I suppose it illustrates one of the unfortunate realities of history, which is that most of the people affected by major events didn't have much of a choice in them. How has powerlessness informed the study of America and the story of America? What I argue, and what, this is actually something I came to believe on, again, like kind of freshly reading the evidence, was that it is actually the assassination of worlds. It is that slaughter, those atrocities, that enslavement, that profound loss and suffering that is a, a crucible of violence that makes possible the ideas on which this nation is founded. As horrible as that is, the beauty of the idea that all humans are equal that we are born with inalienably with natural rights, uh, that the people are sovereign and they give their consent to be governed. These ideas are actually made possible by the protests made by the powerless during that in the numbers that you cite there. So I give a lot of causal weight to slave insurrection, runaways, enslaved people who run away, wives and servants who flee, to apprentices who run away, to Native peoples who wage wars or in other ways uh, resist the taking of their lands, uh, that it is that sort of the ceaseless question in the, the ferment of that, that, that violent, that world of violence, where people just keep saying again and again and again, by what right have you taken my labor and my life and my freedom? And that it's that conversation that is sparks all this political thought that makes possible say american independence and that doesn't make american independence 
less magnificent in terms of the the power of those political ideas. Their origins are darker and more complicated. But then I think one reason that's useful to think about is then we all have ancestors in that story. A lot of what the book is about is about who counts, who counts as an American. And when you look at the contemporary headlines, say, about immigration, whether it's detention centers for kids or mass deportations or what's colloquially called the Muslim travel ban, how does that all fit into the American story that you're telling? I think immigration restrictionists cannot find a lot of support for their position in the record of the American past. Uh, they have the their political forebears do not come out well in any fair assessment of the seeking of freedom and justice and equality in a democratic society in the American past. And I come out differently on that question than I do say about fundamentalism, with which I gained a lot of sympathy here, not being a fundamentalist myself. Uh, the immigration restrictionists have a very uncomfortable. Uh, legacy to wrestle with. Uh, importantly, there are no federal laws restricting immigration until the 1880s. I mean, fully a century after the founding of the country, it, it, you can just come into the country. Like, they're, they're, like open borders are the most scandalous thing in American history. No, they're not. They're actually the founding ideal. <laughs> you know, like, Jill, one, one of the figures you write about is a woman named Mary E. Lease, a woman I'd never heard about before. And you say that she helped bring the moral crusade into American politics. Who was she and how did she do that? Yeah, she's a pretty fascinating person. So she was a Kansas farmer. She was a farmer's wife. She had, I don't know, six kids. I think most of them died. She, uh, there was like sod farmers in Kansas, uh, lost everything in the Depression of 1873, as so many Americans did. Gave herself basically a college education by reading stuff that she pasted to the wall that she could read while she was doing chores. Uh, she eventually, you know, she studied the law. She ran for office. She eventually became a journalist and worked for Joseph Pulitzer. Um, but she was uh, probably the most famous speaker on the populist speaker circuit before William Jennings Bryan, the great populist demagogue of the late 19th and early 20th <laughs> century. She, like many poor farmers uh, in places like Kansas and Nebraska, looked at the economic development in the second half of that after the Civil War and said, this is just a conspiracy of the government and railroad companies. They've declared corporations to be people, and they're giving corporations all these benefits, and poor farmers can't make a living. And the people have lost all their political power. And uh, one of the ways she thought that could be remedied was by giving women the right to vote. And there, we tend not to pay much attention to how much populism was aligned with a certain strain of suffrage in the 19th century. She was very tall, so people always describe her as an Amazon. And I love her because she <laughs> said, she said, uh, man is man, but woman is superwoman. <laughs> just like, she had this like, great 19th century idea about women's superiority. Like She's just very, very interesting, and she's compelling. She was anti-Semitic. She ended up writing this kind of crazy, insane manifesto about white supremacy at the end of her life. Like, she's a much discredited character for many, many reasons, but you can't just, like, scratch her off. Uh, so she she comes out of that crusade that come that abolitionism is a female crusade, temperance is a female crusade, women's suffrage is a female crusade, populism becomes a female crusade, and then it turns into prohibitionism. What happens after women get the right to vote, they don't need to crusade anymore. But by now, the crusade, the, the, the moral crusade, 
is just a great big giant wrench in the American political <laughs> campaign toolbox. And so other people are like, oh, I'll use that. So Joe McCarthy wages a moral crusade. Barry Goldwater wages a, a moral crusade. Ronald Reagan's campaign was a moral crusade. It becomes the kind of go-to tool of conservatism. Is Donald Trump a moral crusade? Um, no. No. I wouldn't think so. No. No. But he uses the language of a moral crusade. And he, I mean, that's uh, that's one of the many perplexing things about that campaign. But he is anointed by people who are associated with the moral crusade. You know, Phyllis Schlafly, like her last political act, the very, very end of her life in 2016 is to endorse Donald Trump. That's actually... Phyllis Schlafly, the great anti-feminist. The great anti-feminist who stopped the ERA. Yeah. yeah. She, you know, supports McCarthy. She supports Goldwater. She... She's right out of the Mary Lee's playbook. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. One of the things that took me by surprise, although I know you've been obsessed with it in in pieces, including for The New Yorker, is the presence of the media in this book. Um, What is it about early America that made a free press so important and it's enshrined in the First Amendment and it's right up there with the freedom of religion? What did that press in early America look like, and how is it radically different from anywhere else in in Europe, for example? Yeah, so this is, you know, <laughs> to the extent that I have a specialty as a scholar, it really is the history of how we, how we communicate politically. Uh, the idea of the freedom of speech and freedom of press has a, like a, a 17th and 18th century, early 18th century history that really influences our Bill of Rights. But there is uh, also a very particular cast on that those ideas that that the founders of the republic make note of they don't really see have no idea where it's going but they do understand that if people are going to be able to vote for their representatives who will make the laws that the people need to have enough information to cast informed ballots and for the people to have enough information to cast informed ballots in this country that is actually quite big and by 18th century standards, just vast, huge, sprawling, monstrous, they need to have some way to receive ideas other than just the educated gentlemen writing letters to one another. What was the relationship between leaders in the press early on? Is there any precedent to a president calling us, us meaning the press, in public, the enemy of the people? Was there that kind of um, uh, attack or vituperation? You know, we know what things Andrew Jackson said privately, but the presidents all got pissed off at the press. This is the famous thing of Jefferson saying, this is maybe 1804, you know, every newspaper should be divided into four sections, truths, lies, improbabilities, and impossibilities. <laughs> you know, like, it's not that he thought that the, the press was to be believed all the time, but he he knew that it was essential, that there, this is what he says, you know, in his first inaugural address, that the we are all Federalists, we're all Republicans, and we what we agree on is that there ought to be a contest of opinion and that the truth will be found by truth and error having a, a battle on a, on a fair field. I can't help but ask, has the national mood ever been this anxious? Obviously, during the Second World War and times of great emergency, there's a, there's a different feeling among the people, but this sense of chaos, the sense of every day is going to bring some crazy piece of news. Is it, is it comparable to anything in your mind? So I guess the first corrective I always offer when I'm asked that question is, whose past are you talking about? Like, if we are talking about the American history and all of the American past and meaning everybody, 
There is no day before the Emancipation Proclamation that isn't worse than today. Not a single day in all of those centuries. To be born as human chattel and die as human chattel is a worse political state of affairs than the fact that our politicians scream at one another and should never be holding office in the first place. <laughs> I mean, like, I, this is a bad day. But if we want to think about the past as all of our pasts, then I think we need to have some sense of proportion. That's not to say we shouldn't be doing everything that, possible totally, to make the world better now. But I'm just saying like... That, that's totally fair, Jill. And of course, you're right. But does that give you... Does that calm you down as a, as a citizen, as a human being? You know what I think kind of... Um, did this for a lot of people who've been trying to sort of say, well, you know, there's been some bad stuff before, was the um, the detention of babies and toddlers uh, this summer, undocumented immigrants, that that, in the long epic of the American story, that's not worse than Japanese imprisonment during the Second World War. That's pretty much up there with lynching. Like, that is... As, a, as, as great a moral travesty and atrocity as anything done in the name of the American people at any point in our history. And so it's hard to look at that and say, this is an okay time. Well, th- there seems to be a push and pull constantly in this history between the, the forces of forward movement or seeming forward movement and, and the forces of persistence and regression. So is is there always in the course of American history the illusion that you can leave something entirely behind or something has been entirely overcome? I I guess I think that notion of the forward progression itself is the illusion. And I don't mean that in a cynical sense. I mean it in the sense that it's quite important to one side of the argument to believe that the direction that the country is going into is sort of forward in time towards in this kind of march of progress. And then it's quite important to the other side in the political argument often to say that the best times were in the past and we need to return to those, you know, the sort of change we can believe in versus make America great again, that just at the simplistic slogan term we're talking about moving into the future versus turning to the past. And yet, as ideologically useful as that has been for narrow partisan political battles, I don't actually think it represents the real patterns to be discerned in American past. Jill, I I just can't help but say this. First of all, thank you. And I just can't recommend these truths highly enough. It's the most extraordinary, all in one volume of American history that I could imagine and certainly that I've ever read and, and want to thank you. Thank you, David. The title of Jill Lepore's book is These Truths, A History of the United States. You can find more than a decade of her writing for the magazine from originalism on the Supreme Court to the history of Wonder Woman at NewYorker.com. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to WNYC.org slash election.